Why me? Why this? Why now? Why so long? Why him? Why her? Why them? They're all questions that sufferers ask. Maybe you have voiced them, if not out loud, perhaps in your own heart and mind, maybe perhaps even recently. I think you'd agree to say this, that there's nothing more relevant and nothing at times even more difficult than to seek the answer to the age-old question, why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? In biblical circles, the term used to offer an explanation for the suffering and evil in our world is theodicy. It's really just the study of how God can allow so much suffering and evil in our world and still be God. I think it's a question, really, that everyone has thought about, in fact, is thinking about because of all that's taking place in recent months in our world. The war between Russia and Ukraine and the conflict between Israel and Hamas in the Middle East. And, but you know what? That's over there, isn't it? But what about right here? An author I read said, it's the deadly disease, the deadly D's that causes problems. Disease, death, disaster, destruction. And perhaps there are people all over, even in America, that are impacted by these every single day. All you have to do is just turn on the news and there's another mass shooting, another hate crime, another bizarre murder that gets a national attention on television. And on top of all of this, so many other things that we can't control either. Flooding, extreme heat, forest fires, hurricanes, earthquakes, ad infinitum, isn't it? But as difficult and tragic as all of that is, for most of us, it always seems that those things are at arm's length. It seems that it's just, it's someone else who suffers tragically like that. And it's one thing, isn't it? It's one thing to feel the pain of someone that the only way that you know them is because they've been on TV or on the news and you know their name because they've been reported on. But it's quite another thing when it comes to your own front door. See, it's on a whole nother level when the cancer diagnosis is yours or your spouse or a close friend. When the knock at the door late at night is the police and it's not on your neighbors or someone in Trenton or somewhere else, it's yours. It's your knock and it's the Police who have come to give you the bad news, the bad news that you never thought you'd have to endure. It's when the tears won't stop and your face is always moist with them running down your face because you've been recently to the grave of the person that you love the most in life and no longer are they there and the tears, they don't don't seem to stop. See, it's in those times When the questions of theodicy are not just abstract, they become intensely personal. And I think you know it's it's portrayed all over the place in movies like God is Not Dead when the atheist professor abandons his belief in God because God did not answer his prayers as a 12-year-old boy and his mother died of cancer. And in doing so, he turned his back on God. It's visualized by empty pews and churches perhaps like ours, of people who once sat there but no longer because one of the deadly D's struck home in their lives. 
It's experienced by numerous marriages that did not survive the anguish and despair of losing a baby or a child. See, Job is a book about when suffering becomes personal. It's a book about real-life theodicy. It's It's a book about real life problems and suffering, and it's not confined to the pages of a book somewhere on a shelf. It's not confined to the debates of a theology class that's abstract at times. It's a book that asks us all the question that I want you to respond to this morning is, how will you respond to suffering and evil when, not if, but when it comes in your life? See, there are a lot of views, and if you, if you want to, there are myriads of books on the subject, and the approaches can be at times in depth, in depth and at least tedious in some ways, but I'd like to take the time this morning and simplify them all down to just two basic views of people and how they respond to suffering and evil in our culture. And then I want to give you the Christian view. Number one, the, probably the most popular, or at least right at the top, has to be this, hate God. Sometimes it's called fatalism. It is basically the view that holds this, that God is the author of everything, including evil, and evil is just part of God, and because of that, sin is inevitable, and there is no solution for it. Therefore, our response should be this, be stoic. Keep a stiff upper lip, as my grandfather used to say. Resign yourself to it, accept it, and sometimes in harsh tones, they would say, get over it. Flip side of fatalism is humanism. Humanism says God, on the other hand, in contrast, has nothing to do with it. See, there is no God, therefore, evil and suffering is random. Other people, like Rabbi Harold Kushner, wrote a book a few decades ago, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? It was a bestseller. And in it, he says that God is good and God loves to help out, but he cannot control suffering, he cannot control evil, and he certainly cannot stop it. So that approach is not the stoic approach, but the panic approach. It means I avoid it at all costs. It, It makes my life meaningless. And if it gets bad enough, people advise you to kill yourself. Because life is meaningless and suffering, therefore, is meaningless because there really is no plan for your life. Hate God. That's a very prominent one in our culture, especially with the rise of atheism. The other one, on the other hand, is hate yourself. That's kind of the moralist view, and the moralist view is very common, and even some believers have taken and adopted some of it into their lives. The approach says this, God lets evil people suffer evil, and he keeps good people from it. God lets the evil path, and really is for those who deserve it, and for those of us who don't, he keeps it from them. Therefore, when things go wrong, here's what you should say. It's my fault. See, I've done something wrong, and therefore I should just beat myself up. You know why? Because God doesn't allow really bad suffering and evil to people who do good. I would tell you this morning that both of those are smashed by the response in life of Job. 
He responds to suffering in his own life because it's personal, and you know his story most likely. And he responds by, not by hating God, but by holding on to God. He doesn't respond by hating himself, but rather humbling himself. And so in order for us, I believe, as we look at the life of Job this morning for the few minutes we had together, to respond to suffering evil in a biblical way, in a God-honoring way, we have to do two things. We have to keep holding on to God and keep humbling ourselves. So I want to unpack them one at a time and look at these two responses and all along ask yourself the question, which response is yours? Chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. We're going to take that in a moment, look at it in just a minute. But I want to pedal backwards just a little bit and give you some context because you have to know how we got to chapter 23. If you know the story of Job, it's very classic, it's famous. In chapter 1, he starts off so well. He doesn't know that there's been a great debate between God and Satan over him and why Job is so devoted and committed to God and why he lives such a great life for God. And the debate is this. God says it's because he loves him. And Satan says, no, it's not. He doesn't really love you. He loves the things that you give him. And the debate is, will Job love God gratis? Will he love him for nothing? Or does he only love him to the point that God keeps him from suffering and evil and gives him really, really good things. In chapter 1, you'll note that the three Ds out of the four, the deadly Ds come into Job's life. He experiences death, disaster, and destruction. And then though all of that takes place to him in rapid succession, one after another, it says in verse 22 of chapter 1, and all this, and all of this encompasses a lot of evil and suffering. A lot. More than you and I will probably experience in at least more than one lifetime. It says, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And if you're keeping score, you would say Job 1, Satan 0. Chapter 2 is not much difference. There's fourth, the fourth deadly D comes in, and Job has some sort of disease or sickness. And his wife gives him in chapter 2 wonderful advice, hardly. Curse God and die. That's our first approach, isn't it? Hate God. Curse God and die. Here's what he says. Job's wife says this. Just hate God. Really, if he's in control of things and he's not doing anything to alleviate your problems, just hate him and die. It's gotten so bad, Job, just kill yourself. And also, as chapter 3 unfolds and following, Job has three friends. And they basically all tell him this, it's something wrong with you, Job. <laughs> it's all your fault, you know that. You appear to be really righteous and really godly. But we all know there must be secrets in your life and you're not. So here's what he says. Hate yourself. You ought to. And in all of this, 2.10, it says this. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 2, Satan 0. But there's a lot of space between chapter 2 and chapter 23 in Job's life. He starts off so well. But can I tell you this? When you're suffering and it's as severe as his... It's very difficult to maintain. Chapter 23 comes, and time has passed, and God has not changed Job's circumstances. You ever been there? Chronic problems, pain that doesn't go away, 
that you don't find the solution for, there's no relief from it. See, no offer from God with any answers to the questions that he might be beginning to have. And the chapter begins with Job answering one of his friends, Eliphaz, who has basically told Job it's all his fault. Job, wanting to vindicate himself, wants to prove that it is not because he is doing things wrong. And so he goes out on this search, and he begins in 23, and he's looking for God. He is. But God seems to be absent. God seems to be silent. In all of Job's pain and his groaning, he's complaining. That's how the chapter starts. Here's my complaint, and it's not just any, it's bitter. And he's complaining against God. He's groaning literally groaning. And what Job wants more than anything else is to appear in the heaven's court before God because he thinks this, if he could appear before God, who in verse 7 he calls my judge, see, then he could make an argument. And there's all kind of courtroom language. He says, I want to appear to his seat. That's God's throne. If I could lay my case before him, it says in the text, if I could fill my mouth with arguments, see, I, I would tell God, see, here's why this is all true, and I could vindicate myself, he says. He said, then God would answer me, and God would say to me, and then another term, legal term, acquitted forever. See, here's what he wants. I just want to appear before God. Now, for me, I don't know about you, I've never thought that I ever wanted to be in a court. I've been in a court twice. Once when I was a teenager, once when I was an adult, and both of them because I caused an accident. Once on slippery, slippery uh, uh, an embankment, and another time, well, we'll go on about that. I was going to a Bible study, so there must have been something spiritual about it. But when I go into court, I remember this. You have to wear a suit and tie, because my first one was when I was 16. I had to appear before court. And I had to tell them this. And then it's confusing because you're guilty, but you have to say not guilty. And you have to get a lesser charge and all this stuff. But I remember going to court. I didn't want to go to court. I didn't want to appear in court. I just wanted it to be over, but not Job. Now, see, Job, he wants to be vindicated before God. And he says, I want God to be God. I want you to sit on your throne. I want you to be the judge of me. And I want you to know that I can vindicate myself. But here's what I notice is that Job doesn't have to... He isn't trying to vindicate God. He's not trying to put God on trial. No matter what has happened to him, he wants to appear before God, but he's not trying to say, God, you have to prove to me anything. See, today it's different, isn't it? When people talk about suffering and evil in their life, see, modern people, they want to reverse the rules. They want to be the judge. See, we're the judges today, and God is on trial. We tell ourselves that we'll be reasonable judges, and if God gives us reasonable explanations and answers to all the deadly deeds in our lives, in our experience, in our world, especially if it's our own personally, see, then we'll be all ears, and we'll listen to God and what he has to say, and we might even be willing to acquit God of all the guilty things that he's done if his explanations are good enough. You have never done that, right? You've never, oh, you've never shaken your fist in God's face. Well, not outwardly, right? Do you ever question him? Do you ever say, God, what are you doing? Do you ever think that actually you know better than him? Oh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We are on the bench, meaning in the courtroom. 
We're the questioners today, he says. We are the cross-examiners. We are the prosecution, and God is on trial. We have to learn that God is not the ultimate answerer. Rather, Lewis says, he is the ultimate questioner. I took the time, fast forward, to read toward the end of the book of Job. In the last few chapters, in chapters 38 through 41, is after Job has been talking and all of his friends have been talking, finally God says, now I'm going to talk. And out of the whirlwind in chapter 38, it says God answers Job, but it's strange. Though he says to Job, dress for action like a man, I will question you and you are going to make it known to me. In other words, put on your big boy pants because now I'm going to talk. And you know what he does for three chapters? All he does is ask Job questions. In fact, I counted them. Seventy. Seventy questions in a row. Not an answer, not an explanation. Questions, i.e., like, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the world? Yikes. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? In other words, Job, does the lightning bolts, do they report to you? And on and on. That was only two. There were 68 more questions. All of them cover every one of the deadly deeds. See, Job, where are you about the storms and about the destruction, about things that go on in their world? See, here's what he says. Job, are you in charge? Can I tell you this morning, and this is something you've got to get down, if you're ever going to respond to suffering evil, you have to realize that God is not the one who comes to us and gives us all the big answers. Although in his kindness and mercy, he does give us answers and he does show us purposes, some of them sometimes. But rather, God is the one who comes with us to us with all the big questions. And the question for you is, are you okay with that? Jonathan Edwards' wife was. Sarah Edwards was married to Jonathan Edwards. You know him, famous preacher, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was the third president of Princeton University when it actually was fundamental. He took the smallpox inoculation, which was brand new. It gave him smallpox. And within a matter of weeks, he died. 54 years old. He's buried in the Princeton Cemetery nearby. Sarah Edwards, his wife, wrote her daughter Esther a letter. I want to read an excerpt from it this morning. It is profound. My very dear child, what shall I say? In other words, is she going to complain? Is she going to ask questions? Is she going to be the judge? Listen to what she says. A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. Listen to this. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a difference. Oh, Job's wife, curse God and die. 
Jonathan Edwards' wife, oh, he has made me adore him, adore him. Sarah Edwards did not see herself as the judge. Here's what she says to the judge, kiss the rod. I don't know all the reasons why God is doing it. Kiss the rod. But here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not questioning it. I'm laying my hands on my mouth. You know why? Because the answer is not hating God. It's holding on to God. See how Sarah Edwards does it? See how Job does it? He doesn't hate God. He holds on to him. And he lets God be God. He lets God be there. And the tension between God's holiness and God's goodness, they let the tension and the mystery remain. Because they know that he is God. So when you face suffering, as you perhaps are now or will at some point face, who is judge? Who is judge? You or God? That's important. You know why? I've had people, more than one, over the years where I've counseled them, good friends actually, after a divorce that was tragic and ugly, I have heard statements like this. Pastor Walker, I can no longer follow God anymore because he let all of this happen to me. How could God really say that he loves me when the thing I wanted the most he has taken from me? Divorces. When your children don't turn out and you pray and you cry... And you pray and you cry and nothing changes. The circumstances are still the same. See, all you have is questions and there don't seem to be any answers. What do you do? Well, for the people I have talked to over the years that gave up on God, suffering made them abhor God. Sarah Edwards, it made her adore God. How? How is that possible? How is it possible for Job? How is it possible for Sarah Edwards? Here's how. My God lives, she said, and he has my heart. Oh, see, that's the question, isn't it? See, that's the question for all of us. See, if you only worship God and you only love God when he keeps all the suffering and evil out of your life, at least the big ones, and gives you all the things that you think are good and all that you want in your life and never takes those things away, if that's the only time you worship and love him, he does not have your heart. See, he's a utilitarian God, as Tozer says, that we just want a little bit of God, a little bit of God, a pound of God, Tozer says. But we really don't want him. We just want the things that he can give to us. And when we lose them, the reality is revealed, is it not? And so Job has been looking for God. And in fact, look at verses 8 and 9. He says, behold, and he wants you to pay attention to this because it's true. He has gone on a search for God's courtroom and he can't appear there. In fact, God's not in his courtroom and he doesn't know where he is. And he says, let me show you all four directions, verses 8 and 9. I go forward. He's not there. Backward, I can't perceive him. Left side, I can't behold him. Right hand, I don't see him at all. He can't sense him. He can't see him. And perhaps that you, you say, God, I've been crying out to him, praying to him. God, step in and do something. Where is he? And you, like Job, you say, I've been asking God, where are you? I've been looking for him, and he is nowhere to be found. I almost like I need to put out a missing person. And go after him. 
And the reason that you can't find him is he wants to know the answer to another of his questions, and that is this. Will you trust him when you can't trace him? Chris Carpenter used to sing this song years ago when I first came here. And the lyrics say this, All things work for our good, though sometimes we don't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us to the truth. Our Father knows what's best for us. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and you just can't see Him, remember, you're never alone. And the chorus says this, so when you don't understand, when you don't see His plan, when you can't trace His hand, trust his heart. Oh, see, that's what God wants to know. That's what he wants to know of you. That's what he wanted to know of Job. That's what he wanted to know of Sarah Edwards. See, when all of you needs all of God, where is he? I read this chapter numerous times this week, and you know what I found and looked at for the first time? He, he, he want, all of Job has been impacted by the suffering and evil He says, my hand in verse 2, my mouth in verse 4, my eyes in verse 9, my foot in verse 11, my heart in verse 16, my face in verse 17. He says, everything about me, head to toe, is all been impacted by suffering. And I know that there are people here who have felt that, that every single part of you, nothing exempted, has been able to get away from the pain and the difficulty, and the tears, and the sorrow that's come. But i got to tell you, in the passage as well, do you know what I also found? Those very same things were listed by God, about God. God's steps, verse 11. His way, verse 11. His lips, verse 12. His mouth. Can I tell you this? All of God is enough for all of you. In the worst times of suffering, in the worst times of evil, it's all God. He can handle it. He can help you. He is there. You can hold on to him. See, here's what Job came to the realization of. He didn't know a lot of things, and there were a lot of knots. Do you read them there? He says, he's not there. I cannot perceive him. I cannot see him. So when you're looking for God in the subjective way and you can't see him, you can't sense him, you don't feel him, you don't know whether he's really there or not, you know how you respond to it? You do it with objective knots. See, he had the subjective knots and now the objective knots, and that is this. Here's what he says. I have held fast to his steps and I have not turned aside. I have kept his ways and I have not departed from them. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food, he says. Oh, see, oftentimes when we look for God in times of suffering and evil, it's so subjective. We're looking for him in visible ways, in tangible ways, things that we can see that he's active and working. And here's what Job says. I see, I know he's working. I can't see it, and I need to. And here's what he says. The answer to it is objective truth. See, we need both. We need tears and we need truth. Job shaved his head. Job cried. He wept. He tore his clothes. In chapter one, he did all those things, and we should too. We are not robots. 
We are not mechanical. And God expects us to cry and sorrow and grieve, and it'll be tough to get over. But can I tell you that? It cannot just be the subjective parts when we face suffering and evil. There has to be objective truth. And here's what he says. I hold on to you, God, because I hold on to your word. See? God, I have kept your steps. And it's not just that we do the right things and we go through the motions on the outside because I've held your steps, I've kept your way. God, I'm doing what you said. He says, I know, but I want more than that. He says, and Job says, and I get it. Here's why. I've treasured. You see, that? that's an inside word. I don't want you to just go through the motions. I don't want you just to show up at church and say God is good and inside I'm not sure that you really believe it. No, he says, I want you to treasure it. I want my objective truth that speaks to your suffering in your life, I want you to treasure it. It's the same word used in Psalm 119. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against God. See, you cannot fight sin unless your words get off the page and into your heart where you value them and believe them more than the lies of sin. And here's what God says. I want to know, in your suffering, will you trust me by treasuring me? By believing what my word says about suffering evil instead of all the approaches and the false philosophies of our world. Will you believe it like that? Will you treasure it? Will you treasure what I say even more than if your bills don't get paid? Will you treasure my word more than whether your marriage turns out the way you thought it would or not? Will you still treasure what I say and obey what I say if the cancer never gets healed? I'll see, that's what we need. It's not hating God that we need. It's holding on to him. Holding on to his words in our lives. But that's the the second one is this. He doesn't hate himself. He humbles himself. And if you look at verses 13 through 17, you'll note these things. That it's basically a brief systematic theology. (laughs) Because in it, it says in verse 13, he starts off with this characteristic and attribute. He's immutable. He, look what it says. He is unchangeable. And then it says that God is sovereign because he does whatever he desires to do. In other words, you can't question God ultimately. You know why? Because he's sovereign. He's in control, which, by the way, means all of your suffering and all of your sinfulness is limited only by him and controlled only by him. He is not out of control. And it's not that God cannot help. As the humanistic view says, oh no, he's in control and he's sovereign. As Sarah Edwards would say, the Lord has done it. Verse 14, Job says, God is good because he will complete what he has appointed for me. He's going to complete it all. There may be more suffering, but God is going to see it to its end and accomplish what's best. Oh, there's so many more. He's omniscient in verse 14. He's omnipotent, the almighty God in verse 16. And in verse 15, he is imminent because even though Job's terrified at God because of how holy he is, he knows that God's presence is there. See, that's what God wants from us. He wants us to see how awesome and great and powerful and wise and mighty he is. Why? So that in our suffering, we won't get arrogant and proud and put God in the dock. And we won't have God on trial. And yet still we will do this. We will humble ourselves to realize who he is and where he is and who we are. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist 
who survived the death, camp, death camps of World War II. And in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he said this, The men and women who survived were the men and women who stopped asking, what is the meaning of life? And began to realize that life was actually asking them, what is the meaning of you? He didn't, listen, Viktor Frankl was not even a believer. He didn't believe in a personal God whatsoever. But he did say this, that those people began to realize that what made life meaningful or meaningless was not life itself, but the way that you lived it. Can I tell you this? In part, he's right. See, the real question that we need to ask ourselves is not how bad life is, but what is the meaning of you? What is your purpose? Do you really have a theology of God? Do you really hold on to his word? See, are you holding or are you hating? Are you hating or are you humbling yourself? See, what's the meaning of you? Because that's exactly what suffering brings out. Ultimately, though, as Christians, can I tell you our view? Our view believes this. We believe that all of our why questions are answered by God himself who asked the ultimate why question. Jesus is hanging on a cross, suffering for sin and evil in a way that we cannot totally or fully grasp. And on the cross, he utters the why question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus, he, he gives the ultimate question so that he can give us the ultimate answer. God would say this, I take seriously so, suffering so much that I sent my son to suffer and die. I've, asked, I've been asked by someone before, why doesn't God just snap his fingers and stop and get rid of all of the evil in the world? And I answer with this, because in doing so, he would have to get rid of you. The only way, the only way that God can get rid of evil and suffering and not get rid of you with it is for Jesus to die in your place. See, that's why he had to come. That's why he suffered and died. He was not a sinner, and he had never done evil, but it is his cross death, suffering for sin and for your evil and mine. That's how he has overcome it. Not by the snap of his fingers, but by the death of his son. See, Jesus, he took the charge for our sin. Job didn't charge God with sin. You know why? Because God would eventually charge Jesus with it. Even though he was innocent, God charged Jesus with our sin so that he could take the evil, so that he could give us forgiveness, so that we could know that we have eternal life. Will you trust him? That's how much God loves you. That's how serious he is about answering sin. He answered it in the death and resurrection of his son. Will you let his suffering be the answer that you are looking for? Will you hate him? Or will you hold on to him? Will you hate yourself or will you humble yourself? The answer to those questions 
will tell everything about the meaning of you. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, perhaps you're here this morning and you face suffering. Maybe it's been passed for a while, but not its effects. They're ongoing. The anguish, the tears, the heartache, you can identify with the song, Struggles That Break Our Heart in Two. But you'd have to say, Pastor Walker, I've been the questioner. And truthfully, I've been demanding that God be the answerer. You know why? Because I haven't humbled myself. I need to let God be God. He's the judge, not me. I need to do that in my life. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning. And you're suffering and you're going through difficulty. And perhaps maybe some of the choices you've made have to do with what's going on in your life. But can I tell you this? Whatever the cause, God is still in control. And he wants to make you like he did Job. He wants to make you his servant. But servants have to love him and value and worship him for nothing And perhaps you're here as a believer this morning, and that isn't you. See, in the end, even in chapter 23, the final score, Job 3, Satan, nothing. What's the score for you? Where do you stand? How have you approached suffering? How do you respond to it? How will you respond to it? Because it's the meaning of who you are. Perhaps you're a believer here and you say, Pastor Walker... I have not been responding to suffering in my life the way that you talked about this morning. In fact, maybe somewhat opposite of that. But I need to humble myself. I need to hold on to God and humble myself. Please pray for me. Would you lift your hand as a believer and I'll pray for you as well this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Many hands. Thank you. If you're here this morning and you'd say, Pastor Walker... I don't have that approach. I don't have anything like you've talked about. And it could be that you just don't know Jesus. You haven't realized that he did answer the question for suffering because he died for it. He died so that you could be forgiven. That suffering and evil would not have to overcome you because he has overcome it. Perhaps today is the day that you need to put your faith and trust in him alone. The really only answer to any question you'll ever need is him. Oh, we'll be here. You can always come by the church after any service. I'll be glad to sit down and talk with you and show you how you can know Jesus who suffered for your sin and evil so that you could have life. Father, you know. You know the needs of every individual in this room. Those who raised their hand and those who didn't and those who are deeply convicted, those who are thinking, oh God, bring repentance. Bring change. Bring transformation. Oh, deep transformation in the lives of believers that would go so deep that they would treasure it. Treasure the Bible. Treasure the Word of God. Hold on to it for, by your grace and for your glory. And for those who today don't know the one who died, who don't know your son, who suffered for sin and for evil, that 
we might have forgiveness. Oh God, I pray that you would overcome their unbelief as only you can. Draw them to yourself. Bring them to humility that they too might have life in your name. And we'll give you praise and honor and glory for all you're pleased to accomplish. For it's in Jesus Christ, our King, we pray. Amen.